This is how we could start it off. Like, it's a war. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> how and like, I respect it. But like, yeah, so people might get drafted. So they're going to die. I just love when she says that. Dying. Thank you, Vanessa Hudgens, for joining the podcast tonight. Um, it's Vanessa Ann Hudgens. It's actually Baby V. It's Baby V. Baby V? Baby She back. Did she add the Ann to her name? No, yeah, she actually dropped the Ann. Like, I think after she left Disney. Just like she dropped her career. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. She's a queen, not gonna lie, but that COVID thing was crazy. Um, yeah. she has made too many Princess Switch movies. I'm dead. They're like on their third one. I don't really know what those are. Um, Vanessa Hudgens plays five to six different characters. I truly don't know how we're going to get from this to what's going on in the world. <laughs> and I think that's the perfect point to jump off. Uh, we need to carry on. And I think that we didn't know how to start this episode, right? Like, I think that this is is one of the more complicated topics we've unpacked together. Um, and so with that, I do want to say welcome back to everybody here, our panel of podcasters, but also welcome to everybody who's listening. Um, this is Let's Unpack That, your weekly podcast where queer and questionable millennials unpack world events through the lens of anxiety, depression, and a stunning lack of expertise. And tonight, we are really leaning into that lack of expertise. Um, we are unpacking recent headlines um, with Andrew, Kirk, and Erica. There will be no introductions this week. We do want to take this episode fairly seriously. Um, if you can't tell from the title, what we're talking about tonight is the um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there has been a lot that has been shared, said online. Um, you know, there's been a lot of information to digest and process over the past five or so days. There's also stuff that we've been ignoring for a decade um, that that very much built to this point. Um, and so I think that when we're kind of talking and reflecting here, it's important for us to number one, um, admit that we don't know everything. Two, uh, this situation is wildly fluid. Um, and three, um, that we're going to do the best that we can to give you the information you need to talk about this with people in your life. Um, I specifically have stayed away from doing infographics about this um, and sharing some of my own personal thoughts about this because I wanted to do it on the podcast in an organized way when there was more information that we could consolidate, share, and tell a story and I think we have enough now to share this in the form of a podcast. Um, so thank you all for listening. Welcome back to Let's Unpack That. We tonight are going to be talking about Ukraine and Russia. Um, so we're going to take this in a couple different ways. The first thing that we'll do is talk about the background, some of the misinformation that's been spewed online. Um, then we're going to jump into Putin's end goal or what his believed to be end goal is. Um, and we're also going to talk about some of the really obvious racism, both in the media and also in how people are treating uh, people of color in, U in Ukraine and in Russia. Um, finally, we'll close out the episode talking about Biden's response um, and the far right's response, as well as, I think, honestly, the mainstream Republican response, which has been 
if you haven't seen it, pretty terrible. This will be an action-packed show, I feel, just based on you know what we, we are going to share. But I think that it's something that when we kind of put ourselves into the mind of like really what's going on here, this is Vladimir Putin stomping on the idea of democracy. This is somebody who is actively trying to go back to the Soviet Union. Um, and these, I don't know, it's like talking about a topic like this, um, it's going to be outdated from the second that we we start talking about it. Um, but hopefully some of the information we can provide you with tonight is going to help you at least get informed moving forward, whether that be through accounts that you follow on in- Instagram, situations that you challenge in your daily life, um, or you know just in terms of talking about how this conflict happened, the psychology of Vladimir Putin. We are not experts on any of these topics, but but to give you just a little bit of things that you can take to other parts of your life. So um, when we come back, um, we will start with a little bit of the background of this conflict. Um, So the first thing that we wanted to do as it relates to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is go a little bit towards the background. Um, How did we get here? When did this all happen? And Andrew, um, would love for you to kind of kick us off here in this specific section. Yeah. So one of Putin's justifications for his invasion is that Ukraine is not a legitimate country. So let's talk about some history. Starting in 45,000 BC. I'm just kidding. Oh my God. I really was like, shit. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be here all night, guys. I Uh, was like, is this the oldest country in the world? (laughs) Well, that's actually maybe not far from the truth because the human history in the region does stretch all the way back to the very beginnings of the Stone Age. Um, And for millennia, this whole region where Ukraine is situated, um, sort of between Europe and Asia, has been controlled and fought over by many different people groups throughout all of history. Before the Middle Ages, Goths, Huns, Turkic and Slavic peoples, and then during the Middle Ages, Polish, Lithuanians, Mongols, and Cossacks. In the mid to late 1600s, the region fell under the control of the Russian Empire, Austria, and the Kingdom of Hungary, who all imposed strict control over the people to quell any nationalistic spirit. It was during this period and into the 1800s that the Ukrainian National Revival Movement began in opposition. This is when the idea of Ukraine as a distinct group of people and as a nation state really took hold. After World War I shattered Europe and the Russian Revolution in 1917 gave birth to the Soviet Union, several different iterations of a Ukrainian state emerged with more strife and conflict until, at the end of 1922, Ukraine became a founding member of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. Ukraine was an incredibly important part of the USSR with much of the arms industry, high-tech research, and agriculture situated there. An argument can be made that there wouldn't be any USSR without Ukraine. But a lot of bad shit also happened to it, like famines, genocides, World War II, and Chernobyl, with Ukraine taking the brunt of the struggles and even being blamed for a lot of the failings of the Soviet leadership. 
In the 1970s, there was a deliberate policy of Russification meant to diminish Ukrainian identity. It was the Chernobyl disaster in 1986 that really helped spur an independence movement. Ukraine declared its independence in August 1991. Continuing its long history of turmoil, things have not been all fine and dandy since then. There has been corruption, political scandals, civil unrest, revolutions, and war. For as long as humans first stood up and started throwing rocks at each other, the Ukrainian region has been central to power struggles and war, shifting hands and allegiances many, many times over. And Russia has been deeply intertwined with much of that history too, for better or worse. Putin wants the world to believe that Ukraine was created by Russia and thus belongs to Russia. But that's like saying the United Kingdom created America and thus the USA isn't a real country. Ukraine had independence for a hot minute after World War I before becoming part of the USSR, which itself was not really Russia. It was a federation of states like Ukraine and was deliberately formed in opposition to the Russian Empire and the Tsars that came before it. And Ukrainian history goes back much further than the start of the Soviet Union. So Putin's just plain fucking wrong. And I think he knows it, but this has been one of his main talking points to the world is the state doesn't shouldn't exist and it's really part of Russia and really belongs to Russia. The Ukrainian desire to be an independent people and state goes back much further than our own founding fathers desire for the same. Despite how long and complicated the region history is, there is a thread that can be followed through the entire history leading to modern Ukraine. Really, this isn't that much different from the rest of Europe, which has, of course, seen many different people groups come and go and gain control over regions and lose control. So it's it's not something that's unique. Yet for much of that time, Russia has been there to make sure that doesn't happen. So most recently, in 2013, the Ukrainian government was overthrown by revolution when then-President Viktor Yanukovych refused to sign a political and trade agreement with the European Union, which apparently had very wide support in Ukraine. Russia wasn't down with this and started the ongoing Russo-Ukrainian war and annexed the Crimean Peninsula in 2014. And now we're here. After a long military buildup along the Ukrainian border, Putin did the one thing many people throughout the world thought he would never do. He officially invaded another country with the goal of making it part of Russia. And now we're at maybe World War III. I don't fucking know. <laughs> Shit's wild. <laughs> I think that that's great background, you know. I really appreciate what you said about the fact that these types of conflicts are not unique, especially to the continent of Europe. You know, like... This is something that has happened throughout history where people's identities have been taken over, people have fought back, states have, and countries have been consolidated and then brought back. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not at all to compare because these are very different situations, but even the podcast episode we did about Armenia and Artsakh and the territory that Turkey was claiming was theirs, like this is something that consistently happens on the Eurasian continent. And I think that is helpful in determining like to me why this is so wrong <laughs> and why this this is so blatantly obvious that this should not have happened because 
in theory, right? And and the, the the take that we're seeing from a lot of politicians right now is like the we said the world would never go to war again. And we promised after World War II that this would never happen. And this is a threat to that. Meanwhile, we've been bombing countries like crazy as the United States. You know, we literally did last week, like while, while this has all been happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, it happens all the time. Not not to get into that, but I'm just saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying it's comparable as to what's happening, but like there's is some you know nuance to the fact that we do that consistently. And but in some, you know, in some ways, it is comparable. Yeah. We we marched into Iraq with the whole intention mm-hmm. of overthrowing the government and installing a U.S. friendly democratic government. And and we, we did the same in Afghanistan. And I don't think those are legitimate. And I know there's some people now saying, oh, well, you didn't care before. Why do you suddenly care all about yeah. Russia? You know, with the, the implication that um, this is just somebody else's war and we shouldn't get involved. Mm-hmm. And but people did protest both the Afghanistan and Iraq war and every presidential election since those wars have started often had uh, campaign promises to end those wars. So we've cared about war for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, It's constantly been part of our history, part of our history. (laughs) (laughs) It's constantly been part of our history. That was the biggest differentiator between in theory, it was the one that got the most media traction, the biggest differentiator between Bernie and Hillary, you know, in mm-hmm. 2016. Yeah. And, and you know, like one of the reasons why we're saying, like, we're not saying get involved militarily, uh, certainly not in this podcast, but what we're saying, we, we are involved from a sanctions perspective because we don't want to fucking do that again, because we don't yeah. want to invade again, because we don't want to try to be a savior again. So that's why, like, I think a lot of people are protesting in this way uh, because a lot of us are kind of tired of our country being at war and creating more problems in these countries than there were before any type of invasion or threat to security happened. You know, I I think that that's one reason why we do care so much more now. And it's so much more visible now to us Mm -hmm. on social media. It's so much more, you know, accessible in terms of videos that you can see interviews and stuff. It was not the same way in 2001. You know, you couldn't just tweet you well, know so. imagine if it yeah i mean we'll get into i know like the whole racial aspect of all this and i think like we would i don't think we would know we would not know about this have if there wasn't yeah. social media not the but into things that we're seeing around the racism and how people are how, what's happening in live time getting on the trains and getting on buses and trying to escape and it, i mean it's a point great point because like even if you think about like the war in 9-11 if there was phones like the phones we have now all the twin towers were falling like imagine what we would know now about the whole situation but i also that's also to say imagine the generational trauma that would come from that because you know the i think you know we're seeing this so much and it's a world away and we're closer but we're not close but to imagine something that was so traumatic to people who weren't you know, physically where the planes crash are still experiencing PTSD. Um, I think when you add in this, you know, especially TikTok, where you can just record, post, boom, millions of people have seen it within, you know, the hour. Um, I think that would have been so visceral. Like, I think we would be, I mean, not that we're doing great, because we're not. I think all of us have some type of mental health issue. 
Um, but that's to say, imagine, imagine how that sticks with people and then imagine that being like your whole country being attacked. And on 9-11, yes, New York was attacked. Um, and yes, in a sense, we as a country were attacked. But to literally have these forces like coming in, it must be like, you know, that box where the walls are just closing in. And it's like, what do you do? Um, and I think that the news could do a better aspect of humanizing it. Um, but I, I think through social media, it is humanizing it. And it's not just this conflict over land or status. Um, it's a it's a conflict of humanity. Um, and I think we're all getting to see that in a different light. Yeah. And to, to your point, the fact that we could even make a podcast about this while it's happening in real time. Yeah. <laughs> of course, there were radio shows, you know, back then, but certainly not the amount of content. But you hit on something of just kind of why the Russian troops have attacked. Um, and, you know, I pulled just kind of some quotes from the BBC here. In a pre-dawn TV address on the 24th of February, President Putin declared Russia could not feel safe, develop and exist because of what he claimed was a constant threat from modern Ukraine. Immediately, airports and military headquarters were attacked. Then tanks and troops rolled in from Russia, Russian annexed Crimea, and its ally Belarus. Now, warplanes have bombed major cities. And Russia refuses to use the term war or even invasion. Many of its leaders' justifications for it are false and irrational. Putin claimed that his goal was to protect the people subjected to bullying and genocide and aim for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. There has been no genocide in Ukraine. It is a vibrant democracy led by a president who is Jewish. And how could I be a Nazi is what President Zelensky asked, who likened Russia's onslaught to Nazi Germany in the invasion during World War II. The Ukraine's chief rabbi and the Auschwitz Memorial have also rejected Russia's slur in this matter. And President Putin has frequently accused Ukraine of being taken over by extremists ever since the pro-Russian president Yanukovych was ousted in 2014. Um, Russia then retaliated multiple times after that, as Andrew alluded to. But then later on this year, uh, troops began to be deployed close to the Ukrainian borders. And I think what's important to note um, as it relates to the why, and as Erica, you said, that feeling of being closed in and being surrounded, there is a literal caravan of, of Russian soldiers, 40 miles long, I believe, coming uh, from Russia to invade Ukraine. What we're seeing right now is the very like early, early pieces of this conflict. And by the time this podcast released, it's part of it's going to be outdated. But this is only going to continue to escalate, and the size of the Russian military far outweighs the side of the Ukrainian military. And that is very scary, um, because that is a president of a country invading another country that is a democratic country. That is a literal threat to democracy and how the country exists. Um, and these are the types of things that you know historians and sociologists and people who study this stuff have been warning about for a really long time, uh, whether it was Russia or whether it was China or even what's happening in the United States, there is a rise of anti-democratic values across the world. And this is the biggest escalation we've seen of that so far. I, and I think another reason Putin grew up 
in Russia in the 70s at the height of that Russification movement. And I think it's important to realize just how important Ukraine was to the USSR. It has always been a center for agriculture in Europe, and it was also a key epicenter of the USSR's industrialization. Also, sort of the tip of the Soviet spear in the Cold War as serving as that gateway to the rest of Europe. So it's that country has so much importance to the USSR. And I think this is me speaking out of my ass, not being a historian, (laughs) um, leaning into my non-expert status. I, I think part of that is the ways that Russia diminished Ukrainians as a people is because of how important they were to the USSR and and maybe not wanting them to really realize that and go back to their um, thoughts of independence that they had at the early part of the 1900s. And I think we're seeing that kind of again now where they're they're making this shift towards the West, towards Europe. After Yanukovych was overthrown, the next president did sign the agreement with the EU. There has been talk of them joining NATO. It hasn't happened for a lot of reasons. That's very complicated, but it is something that could be a possibility. And I think those things are really scary to to Putin because this still is an important country to him. He still has that that mindset from the Soviet era that he grew up in where all those former eastern bloc countries belong to Russia in his mind. They're they're not distinct countries. They're actually just a part of Russia. And they're at that border of the east and the west. This this weird fucking border that we have in our minds, this geopolitical border that's so weird to me. So I think he sees that as as a threat. If such an important country that he still views as important in the same way that the Soviet Union viewed it as important becomes part of Europe or be even just becomes closer to Europe. And once that happened, he took military action. And you know, I think it's weird that even in the the Western media, we don't call those things war. I mean, annexing Crimea sounds like something you do for fun on a Tuesday, and and it was really a conflict. Yeah, I, I think you know, podcaster quoting another podcaster here, but the I listened to the Pod Save America episode that was released today as we're recording this, um, and they were talking about exactly that. Like right now, there is a lot of fanfare, and there's a lot of amazing images coming out of the Ukrainians fighting back. And that is amazing and impressive that people are so proud of their country that they're willing to defend it. Um, I can't say that I would, you know, feel the same, you know, that I wouldn't flee, you know, like, like, um, and I I think that there's something obviously incredible, incredibly beautiful about that. Um, But the reality is, is the size and scale of the Russian operation is huge they must believe, Andrew, to your point, that this is a winnable, they're not using the word war, but that it's a winnable war for them. Um, And that's terrifying. You know, they've clearly had their own production challenges that, you know, their 40 mile caravan, part of it was stalled today because they ran out of gas, they ran out of food, like they couldn't like, they're a partially disorganized mess as well. But just based on pure numbers alone, they've, they've got the resources to do this. 
But I do want to transition to Kirk, the section that I know you were going to talk about, Putin's end goal here, or what people are speculating his end goal to be. Um, Andrew, I think, already alluded to it a little bit. Erica, I think you alluded to it, too. Um, but Kirk, from what you've been reading, um, what is Putin's end goal from your from your non-expertise? I actually like that, Andrew, but the non-expert perspective. What is Putin's end goal? Please um, dissect the psychology of Vladimir Putin. Well, as a close friend, um, I can, can do that. I'm um, just kidding. No, but I think, I mean, Andrew said, or maybe Paul said in the beginning of the podcast, I think the main big thing here, obviously, we keep going back to is, you know, it's a, and a lot of people are calling it this, obviously, but a war for regime change. And I feel like that is kind of a little bit of an obvious, you know, kind of, I don't know if that's an end goal, but there's obvious reasons to why this is happening. But I found a few different, one thing I want to read a thread on Twitter that I found, which I thought was really interesting um, around somebody kind of just dissecting like what the end game could possibly be. Again, this is just somebody assuming, but I think there are four really interesting assumptions that could go in four different directions um, that I think would be a good discussion to have. But um, none of them are, are great. They're not, of course, none of them are, go- are good scenarios, but um, this is kind of what I found interesting. So the first one is foreign imposed regime change, which we keep talking about here. I think that's one of the obvious ones, you know, where he seeks to establish a pro-Russian regime. Ukraine remains independent, but is supported indefinitely by Russian forces, which I think one of the articles I was reading too talks about that, about how it's kind of a bit of a, you know, Russian comes in without, without a real strong plan, but they're there and they're not leaving anytime soon until they figure out what they're doing in terms of at least being in the capital. So that's part one. Scenario two would be Putin seeking to annex all of Ukraine into Russia, which I think is something that I keep seeing pop up as well. Um, scenario three would be an imperial overreach. So basically Putin's ethno-nationalism combined with security paranoia leads him to seek recreation of the entire Russia empire, the USSR, all of the near abroad is the next target, which I think is something Paul alluded to in the beginning around the USSR, you know, and that I think is a scary, well, they're all scary, but it's a scary one if we're talking about, you know, it's it's more than just Ukraine, he wants more than just that, and there's a power grab, you know, beyond just Ukraine. And then uh, a fourth scenario, kind of turning this into a major power war, so Putin specifically shifts his focus on the Baltic states, despite being NATO members, Putin senses an opportunity to strike and and correct the mistakes of letting them join the West. So I think one thing that kept popping up as well was post-Cold War, Russia has been trying to recover the power of the Soviet Union and to be seen as equal by the West and then this be able to influence political developments amongst its neighbors. And Ukraine has, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine has been incorporating itself into the Western orbit of influence and that is going against his interests. So I think that's something that has been reported on quite a bit and something that's been bubbling, I think, under the surface through the years is that Ukraine is just not acting the way that Putin wants it to act or how Putin can control it. Um, so I think that's, those are four different scenarios. I think they're all kind of all tie back to, you know, him wanting to have power over this, over Ukraine and then over other areas as well, other countries, not just Ukraine. I think the one of the interesting ones will be like, and I don't know if it's the most likely one, but the one of having like a Russian friendly government in the capital based upon what's happened so far around the main objective of the military intervention, like that would seem to be the most, the easiest thing for him to do because like the Ukrainian people aren't just going to sit back and like let him control, right? Like that's not, I don't think that's like the first option. And we do see that in Belarus. That guy is completely Putin's puppet. Ukraine itself, as of right now, given the leadership, wouldn't just fold and be a puppet. Right. Something right now, very terrifying would have to happen right yes. president zelensky right for this right. For, for him to put this in place like that man would need to be imprisoned and executed yeah and yeah that is terrifying because i think we all saw videos of him like saying goodbye to his family 
which I also think, I'm not saying that that's an op, I mean, but that's probably part of, you know, as that I think the lightest version of it is like them taking control of the capital, but like then the craziest is all the way down to that almost, Mm -hmm. which then spreads beyond Ukraine potentially. Correct. But Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, the whole thing at the end of the day is this, you know, his, his want of power. And I think he's trying, I don't know, he's not even masking it very well, but I feel like the messaging they've been using is trying to mask that at least like, as if it's like, we're here to save you type of thing. So I will say to the point of how far Putin's willing to go, they sent in 400 mercenaries into Ukraine for the purpose of killing the president. So this isn't even a potential power grab. Like they're, He's ordered Zelensky's head on a platter. Um, and I don't think it's going to be this matter of Ukrainians have any control over their country because clearly they cannot be trusted to fall in line with what Russia wants, as you can tell by the way that they're fighting. So I think it's, I don't think it is going to be there will be any drop of collaboration or um, option for the Ukrainians. I agree. Uh, some people have said that they think Putin must be surprised by the response and resistance he got. Now, we don't know what Putin is thinking, and we don't know how true that is, but we have definitely seen a ton of resistance from the Ukrainian people. And we can clearly see that from the start of this whole thing in 2013, when the majority of of Ukrainians didn't want anything to do with Yanukovych anymore, and they didn't want anything to do with Russia, and they had a revolution, a literal revolution where they overthrew their government and made their president flee and then created a new government. So clearly, the majority of the Ukrainian people don't want to be part of Russia despite what Putin says, because that's another thing he says that, right. well, yeah, most most people are actually Russian or they speak Russian and it's a Western lie that Ukraine wants to be part of the West and doesn't want to be part of Russia. Yeah. Meanwhile, the, there's videos of the president of Ukraine out on the streets with guns in his hands, yeah. you know, <laughs> and not that the president speaks for every individual person, obviously. Right. But it certainly seems to me, at least you know, the commentary that I've been reading, that there's a high sense of pride in being Ukrainian. There's there's a real closeness to that flag, to those roots, and to their independence. You know, um, I, I don't know how it would compare to something like the the United States, or you know how people celebrate the Fourth of July, and there's like lots of you know nationalism here that's growing in some very dangerous ways. But like there does seem to be a real pride in in being a Ukrainian. I mean, I also think on the flip side from what I'm, we're seeing to an extent on social media is that r- r- the Russian people aren't feeling the same way that Putin is feeling. Right. Which I think is kind of something we should, that should be thought about when, you know, not saying the sh- sanctions and stuff shouldn't be happening under, under Russia and the government and the economy and the people because there's, that's the safest way of going about this right now. But people, I think, assume all, all Russians feel this way. And I, I probably, I feel like a lot don't. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I wrote, it was like, oh, look, all these young people protesting. But it wasn't. Like when you looked at those pictures, it was people of all ages getting beaten by the Russian police. You know, like there's been protests in almost every single country now, you know, across the world, protesting these actions. And that is pretty evident for how 
the world, number one, doesn't want to go back to war and to help people feel. And we can use social media to amplify those messages of peace, you know, or to at least aim for peace. <laughs> and like you said, Kirk, I think we'll get into the sanctions shortly, but like the sanctions are putting an insane amount of pressure on Russia, not just from the US, but like from every country. Like, so how long can that go? How long can that that pressure hold up? It's like, what do you do? You're you're starving people out. You're making their economy less valuable. People are losing their jobs. Their president is focused on something they can't take care of. I don't know. You know, it's like, it's such an awful and, and you know, dangerous situation. There's been a ton of media coverage on this stuff. And there's also been a ton of really poor um, reporting, I would say. Um, some of these clips have made it around the internet now. Um, but the the sort of shock of the world that Ukraine could be invaded, right? Like there's this element of, of, oh my gosh, how could this happen in Europe after World War II? How could this, oh my goodness. You know, it's like this sort of bizarre reaction. But Erica, I know um, we wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, specifically some of the racism that has been very evident and seen. So we'd love to turn it over to you to, to talk about as well. Yeah, there is um, a really interesting Twitter th- thread by a man named Alan McLeod. Um, and he is a staff writer for the Mint Press News. And he al- he's also a contributor to FAR, which is Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Um, and it was essentially just clips from different European news stations throughout the EU um, and the UK, I believe. And it was basically the rhetoric around it was, this is not European. And I'll read some of them. And it's it's so shocking that <laughs> people are saying this on TV. Or, like, or this is even a thought in someone's head. So this one is just absolutely insane. Um It's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. And that is Ukraine's deputy chief prosecutor. I'm not going to attempt the last name, but first name, David. Um, And there it is, right? Like, I don't even have to explain it to you. And that's also to say, like, this is in the backdrop of heinous acts of just complete inhumanity in Yemen and Afghanistan. But for one thing, Yemen was almost never on anyone's radar. I think that I'd say the majority of the U.S. population, probably European population, was not aware of um, what's happening in Yemen. And it is every terrible thing you could think of. It's war, it's disease, it's famine. But again, I think we kind of normalize tragedy in certain parts of the world. Um, Whereas, you know, most people, when they think of Africa, they think of, you know, the the Feed the Children ads. And when they think of the Middle East, they think of that post 9-11, those images that were kind of everywhere um, for the years following. And, you know, still now, but to a lesser extent, um, And so I think it's kind of like this, oh my God, this is so shocking. How could this happen in the world? But it's happening in the world. It is happening all over the world. 
Um, and that is not to say that what is happening in, U- in the Ukraine is not devastating, is not traumatizing, but that's also to say that why do we only have this energy here? And like I said, the unthinkable has happened. This is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe from ITV UK. I could go through this list, um, but I don't think I can make it without like getting physically like and visibly angry. Um, but it's an imp- here's another one. Um, BFM TV France, a two time offender. It's an important question. We're not talking here about Syrians fleeing. We're talking about Europeans. It's like the suffering of black, brown people only works as a metaphor or punchline um, or to prove a point. Um, it's saying that, you know, this is normal for these savage brown countries where, you know, children are sleeping in beds of flies and everyone is destitute, bop, bop, bop. It's making an allegory out of human suffering. Mm -hmm. What's even more disappointing is these are not extremists. These are not, you know, the, the Breitbarts of the world or the OANs of the world. This is mainstream media. This is what it's the BBC, like <laughs> the BBC, yeah. and it, like, it's and like, I said, these are these are this is it's the civilized people. This is a relatively stable, civilized place in, in a safe country. <laughs> like, oh, what? Like you cannot be more obvious, you know? Like, and I'm just, but I mean, also, I, I will say, and I think the post, the first graphic in this post. Um, And it was shared by Amanda Seals. And I think sums this whole thing up perfectly. It says racism got time during war, during apocalypse. Racism always has time. And if the past week hasn't shown you that, you're just blind to it. And I can't help you. But thanks for listening to the podcast. (laughs) Last week, more than that. (laughs) It is interesting, though, when I th- and I, I actually I might just do this for myself, go back and look at the BBC's reporting on race relations in America, because I feel like they're usually the one where they're one of the few outlets, not yet yeah, one of the few out- mainstream outlets that like are pretty like not like they don't really go down that route. I feel like it's almost like if it's in America, then, you know, we're going to, you know, racism is bad there. It's happening and we need to we need to make sure that it doesn't. But everywhere else who really gives a shit. Almost. And I and I, I don't know, I, I'm being an American, I can't speak to other places, but it's interesting seeing, you know, a, a camera on, you know, a huge situation happening in the world right now, and then it not being here and the racial relations that are that are happening there that are issues that we I think all know happen everywhere. It's not just racism happens in America. But I feel like there's this weird like theory that like racism only happens in America. Agree, like, right? Especially when it comes to, to black, black and brown people, but mainly black people, you know, what I mean, I feel like it's just like this only Americans are racist, which obviously I we all agree that there is a race problem in America, but it's other places too. It's almost like when you talk about this way, it's like, uh, no, it's not a problem here. But and it clearly the, is. And it's the impact of, of globalization too and the way that we consume content. We're all so much more connected now than we ever were. And if we see a lot of people treating certain people in a bad way, we're also going to be like, well, yeah, you know, like we can do that too. You know, it's like, it's right. like we're just like we're influencing each other positively to stand up for human rights. We're also bringing out the fucking worst in humanity. That is the innate belief that a lighter skin means you are a superior 
human being. And that is no more evident than how we've responded to Afghanistan <laughs> and how we're responding to right. Ukraine. I know they're completely different conflicts, at least, you know, the most recent events that have happened. Um, but the way that people were talking about Afghanistan, there was such minimal humanity thinking about all of the people who are going to be left behind and all of the women, the children, the like all of the people who have made advances, you know, um, or at least felt some relief from some oppressive rule. Yeah, um, people I mean, People were going on TV in this country talking about, you know, get, getting rid of Muslim place, like religious buildings and whatnot in the country. It was very, it's, it's similar in a way. It yeah. was very apparent that, you know, you could just, you could say what you wanted. And imagine back then if there was the technology we had now, again, for this situation, it would be so interesting and, and revealing. Yeah. And there's all these reports now of, you know, refugees who are darker skinned leaving Ukraine, trying to get back to other countries mm -hmm. and them not being allowed in. Or and we've always, this thing is like, we've always known this. Like, and it's <laughs> like, when we talk about refugees in two years ago, a year ago, in whatever country we're talking about, if it's everyone's, if it's ever a white country, it's not, they're not even considered like refugees. Like, I feel like we don't even use that word almost. Like, I was shocked, Penny. You see all these things on the news about all these countries welcoming these refugees in with open arms. And in my head, I was like, that's insane. We don't do that. We don't. Yeah. What Countries don't accept refugees. They're a burden or they're partial terrorists. Or, you know, what's that stupid um, line that people say? Like, if there's a bag of, in, or a bag of Skittles and one's going to kill you, do you take the bag? Like, where is that mindset here? where, you know, there's this fear of refugees or there's hesitancy. It doesn't exist. And it wasn't until I really under, like, looked into the way, the difference in how this is being covered that I realized, oh my God, this isn't, it's not because they're refugees. It's because they were black or brown refugees. And now that's not the case. And when they do try to come in, we push them out. And it's like, isn't that so insane that you can work in a country, contribute to a country, come to this country with all of the best intentions, but you're still the wrong color? And isn't that the sickest thing you've ever heard? And you want nothing more to be in that country. Yes. This is your dream. Like, this is... This is you giving yourself a better life. Well, you think you're, you're, you're supposed to, this is what it's supposed to be. Yeah. 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 You've been sold this. Yeah. One thing about this conflict is, you know, because it is white people in the Ukraine, they look a lot like a lot of the white people here in America. And there's family over there and their family is here. And in that sense, it's wrong, but you can kind of understand it, that, that there's that shared heritage. But- we're living in the 21st century now, and that was also the case with Afghanistan and Iraq, where there's Afghani people and Iraqi people and people from other Middle Eastern countries that we have bombed living in this country, or their family members are living in this country, and we see them as different. If you were to – I think most people, if they saw a Ukrainian person in the grocery store, they wouldn't think, oh, that's somebody from another country. but 
if they saw a brown or a black person, somebody with a darker skin tone than them in a grocery store, they might wonder if that person is is an American citizen. It happens all the time in groceries. Literally, we see it in grocery store parking lots, wherever, in video, videos all the time. If it's an Asian person, a black person, anyone of, of color, it's like, go back to where you came from. Like, when do you, you that, that would never happen in the situation where people, someone would scream that at someone who's Ukrainian or because you don't know because they're just white. So you're assuming they're from here. But that goes back to, first off, no one's from here for the most part, unless you're native or have native roots. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. like, so this idea of like, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure people who are Ukrainian to some extent here have screamed that at a black person. Like, I'm not saying, you know, or, what, or whatever is in their blood, European that's in their blood. But, and then it's happening now to one of your countries and it's, and we shouldn't be turning them away. We all shouldn't be turning people in those countries away who aren't white. Mm-hmm. It's been happening. Where do they belong? Like, where do they belong then? And, yeah. and I would encourage everybody just to look at the refugees in your community. You know, like I had no idea until I moved to Columbus, Ohio, that Columbus has one of the largest populations of Somali refugees from the civil war in Somalia back in the early, early 90s. And people live there for years and 2 million people have, you know, left Somalia um, in and had to flee. Um, but the fact that, you know, uh, or I shouldn't say that it, we are second to Minnesota, but the, like 50,000 of those people, a pretty significant portion live in Columbus, Ohio. And that's like 60 or, or, or 70,000 live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's like, you would never know that but it's like these protests were happening at the same time. You know, we were just too young to realize that. Like there is a clear and specific pattern in how refugees are treated and then how people from Ukraine who have every right to flee and should be granted refugee status immediately. And yeah. it's crazy that we need to say that, but there's there's zero protests or zero worry about quote unquote these types of refugees, you know? It's just so obvious <laughs> it's so obvious but i know we've we've derailed a little bit so um we're going to take a quick break and then we come back we will talk about biden's response the response of the far right and a mindfulness note about misinformation And welcome back. Uh, right now, we're going to talk about the sanctions from the United States um, with the large disclaimer that um, a lot of major countries um, throughout uh, the world have also put sanctions on Russia. Uh, per CNN, President Joe Biden last Thursday unveiled harsh new sanctions on Russia meant to punish the country for its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, calling out Russian President Vladimir Putin for his aggression, even as he acknowledged it would take time for the new measures to alter Putin's behavior. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now his co- he and his country will bear the consequences, Biden said, laying out a set of measures that will impose a severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. I think this is very much related to Biden's strategy of not getting involved um, from a, a military standpoint in terms of um, troops on the ground while still getting involved in the conflict in that these sanctions are fairly harsh, rightfully so. Um, but Kirk, I know um, wanted to go over to you to talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of the sanctions. And as a group, we can talk about kind of what some of these things mean, uh, mean to the best of our knowledge. Yeah. So 
like a high level, the sanctions are there's an export block on technology, which then would limit Russia's ability to advance its military and aerospace sector, which also is putting restrictions on products, including chips and computers. So a block on technology, which we can get into. And then also one of the bigger ones I think we keep seeing everywhere is um, Russian banks and corrupt billionaires and their families who are close to the Kremlin. So this would mean cutting off Russia's central bank, banning U.S. businesses with that bank, effectively immobilizes any assets of the central bank of the Russian Federation held in the U.S. or by U.S. persons, wherever located, which prohibits America from doing any business with the bank and freezes its assets within the U.S., and then in addition to financial financial institutions and banks, the U.S. has heavily restricted companies critical to the country's economy from raising money through the U.S. market, which obviously is gas companies, oil, freight, and then communications. And then there's a few diamond companies. Um, so all of these obviously meant to impact the economy of Russia. Um, and there were other things around um, sanctions on like leaders specifically, like on Putin, on um, the foreign minister and stuff like that in regards to travel or um, their assets in relation to U.S. But there was a whole list of those, which you can look up. But I think the biggest ones were the technology and then the um, banks and then other institutions. So I guess, you know, from our understanding, right, like the there's there's sanctions from Switzerland, from France, from Japan, from Australia, like there's kind of largely all over the place, um, you know, and and some of the things that I've been reading as well as like they're, they're calling it, they're taking it from like their, it's a known slush fund. It's like the rainy day fund almost where they take this, this money from. Um, and I think that, you know, from, from my perspective um, and, and from the things that I've been reading, right. It's like, this is what needs to happen in order for Putin to feel the pressure of the international community of saying, stop this, pull back, go back to where you were. The, there's a lot of damage that's already been done, um, but we're going to continue to put these like pressures on you. But from, you know, your perspective, you know, either Andrew or Erica, like the, I think it's for me, right? Like talking about economic sanctions, talking about like these things are complicated and they're also really difficult to feel like, real like right because like there's something so real and something so evident about like you did this wrong thing we're Mm -hmm. gonna send in a hundred thousand troops and we're gonna kill you and it's like yeah except like nobody wants that anymore you know (laughs) um so uh, like especially you know after the the conflicts in in iraq and afghanistan um but kind of from your understanding of like benefits of sanctions or, or or kind of like understanding of them like what would you share with the people listening to the podcast when talking with people about sanctions like are these like big goals are they small goals is this like right that we're doing this you know like like what kind of you know is your reaction to some of this stuff or at least your reaction to Biden can I interject one second yes breaking news from the um state of the union that's happening right now is that he also biden has also um, announced that they're joining with allies and closing off american airspace to all russian flights further isolating russia and adding an additional squeeze on their economy so that just happened so i think my stance on these sanctions is that even though they are effective they hurt innocent people more than they are truly hurting the kremlin Obviously, they're Russian citizens who are in support of um, the invasion of Ukraine, but there are Russian citizens who are just trying to 
fucking survive um, in a country that's hard to live in in the first place. I think that, and there's been a lot of talking heads who've kind of mirrored the same, a similar sentiment that if Putin has to sacrifice his people to win this conquest, he will do it. He does not, he is not a democratically elected politician with constituents. He is his own constituent. He does not have to worry about approval ratings or, you know, how certain people feel about him. And that I think is scary. But I also think it it shows that this is not a man who is going to be deeply moved by these sanctions. And that's also to say that these sanctions, a lot of them didn't come out of the blue. Um, they had been discussed to some extent. So that's also to say that Putin was prepared or at least aware of what he could expect. Well, I, I do agree that this is hurting the average Russian citizen a lot right now and will hurt them even more in the future. And this is where like, there's been such a, a weird and varied response from people, especially on the right, to what Biden is or isn't doing. And it doesn't seem like he can win no matter what he does. So I, I really thought that we would do some kind of military action because I didn't think that any kind of sanctions would really do much. So I, th I thought we would probably send troops or, or some kind of direct action, and, and we didn't. And I think that was probably a good thing. So we're, we're going to do this now. I don't think diplomacy would work. I'm hoping that it works. While it's hurting the average Russian citizen quite a lot, and that's not good, us going into Ukraine and, and getting involved militarily may be way, way worse for mm -hmm. everybody. And I fully agree. Like, yeah, I think American soldiers on Ukrainian soil is grounds for war. And like, that's Not terrible to say, yeah. but it it is. Yeah, it like can't be an option to me. Yeah. Know? And I think what what good could come out of the sanctions and, and what they're probably targeted at is is the oligarchs, because they are also running Russia in a lot of ways. I don't think Putin cares about basically being sieged by these sanctions. And I don't think he cares that his his people are hurting. But what he might care about is, I saw a headline today that hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth has been wiped out from a lot of the oligarchs that run all the Russian businesses and they're all friends with Putin. And if they turn on him, that really could have an effect because he's their meal ticket and they are his. I think, I think that's such a good point, you know, like that there's ability to put pressure. This is like the one time, okay, but let's, this is literally tax the rich, you know, <laughs> like for yeah. completely different, gross and disgusting and undemocratic reasons, um, you know, uh, different to the, you know, reasons that I think are, are good and great and we should just eat the rich. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think the, the other thing too, on, on kind of the sanction conversation, um, and Andrew, feel free to edit this in, uh, where I was like stumbling over my words a bit is that I think when people think about, well, what is Biden doing? How is Biden being strong? How is Biden being tough? What he's doing by standing up for the Ukrainian people is also knowingly going to disadvantage 
Americans as well. So like by cutting off 4% of uh, the Russian produced fuel that is in the United States, that limits our supply of fuel and gasoline, that makes our prices go up. So gas prices are now expected to go over $4 a gallon. The last time that that happened was 2008 um, during the financial crisis. Because it's a world market, we all impact one another. It's the same thing with deliveries. Diesel went over $4 a gallon this past weekend. Um, and the trucking industry is already facing a ton of shortages. They have for years, but accelerated by COVID. Shortage of drivers, now higher fuel costs. Where do we think those cuts are going to come from? You know, Are we going to see later delivery times? Is this going to exacerbate some of the frustrations we've already felt just with COVID? Um, and then general, just, you know, non-oil commodities, wheat and lumber, um, you know, things like aluminum, palladium, nickel, titanium, um, all of the things that are used in cars, commercial jets, um, dental fillings, phones, like these are things by Biden standing up. These are things that are, are going to make life a little bit more difficult for us comparatively to people getting killed in Ukraine? Absolutely not. But it is, I think, an important conversation for us to have when we're talking with people in our life and somebody has Biden so weak, he's not doing anything. I'm like, really? He did something as insane as raise your gas prices because he believes in this so much. And like, this is the one time, not he's not raising the gas prices. Fuck, I just fell into the trap. But yeah. I, <laughs> I get, leave that in because I want people to not make the same mistake as me. But, you know, Biden is basically saying he's comfortable with the, the price of fuel rising for Americans, knowing that it's a midterm election year, that his chances of, of being reelected are going to decrease because of this stuff. Um, he's taking a huge risk, politically speaking, um, as it relates to the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Yeah. All right. Well, that was enough economic sanctions talk. Uh, let's jump into something more fun, horrifying. I don't, you know, less heavy, heavy, heavy. The response from the Republican right, specifically some members of the far right. Um, there's been a lot of nonsense. There's been a lot of nonsense over the past week or so. And Erica, you're going to get the first one of some of the far right nonsense on this scandal. So this is not a pack it up, um, though it certainly is. Um, <laughs> in the traditional sense, it's not a pack it up. But uh, uh, what have you been hearing from the from the far right? Well, I have our. I don't even know how to. I was. I'm gonna. I was gonna drag her, but honestly, it's not worth fucking breath. Um, Lauren Boebert, <laughs> Republican from Colorado, a notorious idiot. She is pro gun, pro Trump, and anti-common fucking sense and she told fox nation at cpac um that canada needs to be liberated along with ukraine um and she's gone on record as to say that they quote have a great president right now who's said who's really said clearly live free or die he said i don't need a ride Give me ammunition. The fight is right here. End quote. First of all, this bitch is a part of the same party as Theodore Cruz. So. (laughs) 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 Um, But she has praised Zelensky. And uh, there's been, 
at least from what I've seen, I've seen a lot of rhetoric on the right saying this is why we need guns in reference to these everyday Ukrainian citizens who are arming themselves to fight for their country. Um, I think that rhetoric is incredibly stupid. The United States does not need guns. We have the largest military in the world. Um, We don't need a whole bunch of idiot frat boys crushing claws behind a dumpster to be armed to defend this country. I think we're good. But on top of that, so that kind of brings us to her paralleling this with Canada. And she has called him an autocrat um, as a result of his response to the anti-vaccine protests that have essentially (laughs) crippled international supply chains. And that's a whole thing in itself. She has claimed that President Joe Biden is jealous of the control that tyrant Trudeau has, adding that the Ukraine crisis is all because of weakness in America. I don't even know what to say because it's giving me such an intense migraine that this level of stupid is an elective official that taxpayer dollars are paying the salary to. This is insane. And and like you've said that exact quote on this podcast before about someone else, but this is seriously some next level shit. Period. (laughs) Like I also imagine seeing this much human suffering and then making a political quip out of it to two countries that are not the main players in this situation. There are Americans that you can blame for Russia finding such high degrees of audacity. Um, Americans that rest slash completely modified your own party. Cough, Trump, cough. But you cannot say that this is because of weakness in America. That is so, that is so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Who said that? Who said that? Um, It's insane to me. And it, it just shows the level of ignorance that people are willing to stoop to, to prove a moot point. Agreed. Andrew, what were some of your favorite responses from the far right? And why did you hit up Lauren Boebert on Tinder? (gasps) I'm telling Cassie. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to talk about this guy, Matt Walsh, who we've never talked about on the podcast before, but he is one of the main screaming faces over at the Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's little website. and He's somebody that I I hadn't really heard much about, but apparently is a pretty big deal on the right. Um, I mean, I had heard of him before, but uh, I I didn't really think he was a big deal. He has eight hundred and three thousand followers on oh Twitter. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Um, he's one of these people that tweets an insane amount. Like I don't even know how he performs his bodily functions. Like just non-stop tweeting. I don't even know how he has a job other than tweeting. It's crazy. Anyway, one of his main things is being just violently anti-trans. Like he, nobody hates trans people more than Matt Walsh does. And on the day of the invasion, he tweeted, 
My huge fear right now is that our military hasn't had enough diversity training to prepare them for this moment. Have we recruited enough lesbians? Are our armed forces sufficiently trans-inclusive? Have they confronted their white privilege? Do they know enough about systemic racism? These are the questions that haunt us all. Obvious sarcasm, but the guy's just a fucking crank. I just lost at least 50 brain cells. If you ever, like want to really just hate all of humanity, watch a video of this guy talk. It is infuriating. And he tweets and retweets so much. But just from today, here's one. Americans fawn over Zelensky while he openly tries to push our country into a world war that will get millions of our people killed. It's the most pathetic thing I've ever seen. I don't even know what he's trying to say. Is he trying to say this whole thing is Zelensky's fault? Just to, like, pull us into a conflict? Well, no, because it's American weakness's fault. Duh. <laughs> I feel like you found your new Ben Shapiro. I, I know. But I can't let an episode of the podcast go by without talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I also just have to say, before you go on that, I am, as since Andrew mentioned this guy's name, everyone needs to go to Twitter and look at at Matt Walsh blog. This is fucking unreal. This is fucking unreal. And he's he's literally one of the rising stars in the political right. Anyway, Miss Green. Yeah. So Miss Green, Miss Green actually like she hasn't said too much that's necessarily bad about the invasion and the conflict. Um, it, I it's been kind of weird on the right where um, people kind of realize like now's not the time to say super pro Putin things. Like Tucker Carlson has said a lot of pro-Putin stuff over the last couple of years. In the last couple of days, he's tried to walk a lot of that back and and try to toe the line so people don't come for him too much. And I think Marjorie's a little bit like that too, where she doesn't want to fully go into it. But over the weekend, she and Paul Gosar were speakers, surprise guest speakers at America First Political Action Conference which is founded and headlined by Nick Fuentes. We talked about Nick uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, but he is a legitimate white nationalist and AFPAC is for all intents and purposes, the premier far right white nationalist political event. Now this is its third year and it was its biggest yet with around a thousand attendees which doesn't sound very huge, but the production value was really good. And it was a big draw for some celebrities in that movement like Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who were speakers there. So Nick Fuentes is fully into Putin. On Telegram, a messaging app often used by the far right, he called the invasion the coolest thing to happen since January 6th and said that he is totally rooting for Russia, while also referring to Putin as my czar. <gasps> No. <laughs> in his keynote at the conference, Nick Fuentes said, you know, they say about America, they say diversity is our strength, you know, and I look at China and I look at <gasps> Russia and he stopped himself short. But the clear meaning is that Russia and China are strong because of their nationalism and also because of their bigotry and their oppression of non-cishet people, basically. And America is weak. Because we aren't those You're things. Too nice. I know we are. He followed it up by asking the crowd, can we get a round of applause for Russia? 
and the crowd started chanting, Putin, Putin, Putin. Imagine being that tacky. After Nick Fuentes walked off the stage, Marjorie Taylor Greene was the next speaker. So while Nick Fuentes is this fringe figure, obviously his conference is becoming a bigger deal and it's becoming more legitimate. And it's it's these fringe figures like Nick Fuentes and Matt Walsh that are driving some of this thought in the elected officials like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. What Matt Walsh is saying, you know, and what other people on on the right are saying about well, we're weak because we're concerned about diversity in our military or we're concerned about systemic racism in our schools and Russia and China are going to win because they're not and they're actively working on becoming more of a, of an ethno state and they're actively working on oppressing anyone that they feel falls outside the quote-unquote norm and those views come from this far right and they get filtered into the quote-unquote normal right and we hear these exact talking points coming out of the mouths of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar all the fucking time it's interesting that you mentioned uh Fuentes because um the person whose response I wanted to talk about um was Lauren Witzke. Um, and we talked about her before because she ran for the Senate in Delaware against Chris Coons. Um, he beated her. He beat her. Yes, girl. <laughs> he did beat her. Good work, mama. <laughs> so uh, Lauren Witzke ran for uh, the Senate in the state of Delaware. And she lost to the Democrat incumbent, Chris Coons, by over 20 points. The reason that she won against a former Marine is because she called him a rhino, which is Republican in name only. And she was endorsed by the Delaware State Republican Party. And then during her campaign, as uh, she was running for the race, uh, Nick Fuentes, the white nationalist that Andrew just mentioned, um, endorsed her as well. And she responded, thank you, Nick. Um, during the election, she obviously claimed without evidence that Hunter Biden's laptop contained illicit images of Chris Coons's daughter, in addition to seven other underage girls, um, none of which was proven to be true. Anyway, now, of course, she works for a radio and TV um, host uh, or, or station. I don't even know what you call this. It's called um, True News. Uh, she was hired to replace um, a guy who claimed that the COVID-19 vaccine was being used to commit genocide. So um, certainly um, she is is a, a person to know in that she is endorsed widely now in Republican politics. And what she said um, over the weekend, I actually praise Putin and his ability to maintain his, quote unquote, Christian nationalist nation. I identify more with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden's Christian values. <laughs> this is a legitimate candidate running for the Senate in a state of Delaware who will probably run again, uh, not maybe in these midterms, but in, you know, in 2024. And this is who is widely endorsed in the Republican Party. Somebody who looks at somebody like Putin and says, I admire his Christian values. What it what is that the, the the Christian values that he hunts down people who criticize him and he kills them? There's in the Chechen Republic um, where there's a Putin uh, 
puppet installed that uh, gay men are being hunted down and killed in droves so much so that there was an HBO documentary made where their faces were grayed out. What, what are, what are the Christian values? What are the values that she's talking about? You know, that she sees in Putin that she doesn't see in, in Joe Biden, you know, could she be talking out of her ass? Sure. But still again, terrifying. I, I don't think she is talking out of I her ass. I don't think stuff. any of these people I are. I think yeah. those are the Christian values that they also hold. I think secretly or maybe not so secretly, they admire Putin and they they want to do here what he's doing in Russia. I mean, Nick Fuentes has a, uh, a streaming show and he talks about Putin a lot. And he also, although he hates Muslim people, and he hates Islam. He talks kind of fondly about radical Islamist groups like ISIS and the Taliban because they have such hardline religious views and they crack down on women and they oppress gay people and trans people. And he likes that. And the term that they use on the far right for things that they like or people that they think are, are doing a good job is based after – the Afghan pullout, he was saying the Taliban are based and they're going to return Afghanistan back to the state it was in the 90s, which to him is what it should be, where women are can't drive and women are oppressed and are basically property and gay people are killed. I won't say I don't support the gay thing that you said. They should, the gays shouldn't drive. They should switch that one, yeah. I think. But- <laughs> I can fully attest as someone who's been driven by both Paul and Kirk. (laughs) But it's almost like with these people, like you're like, because they said this for four years or for, yeah, for four years when Trump was president, people like, I'd rather, I don't think anyone's like, I'd rather be living in X, Y, Z, but like, they're like, they're like someone like this is outwardly just speaking how they would rather essentially live under a Putin. Yes. Yeah, live under a Putin than a Biden. Then go move to Russia, honey. Like, have fun. Like, have fun in Russia. Like, how's that going to go for you? Could you imagine any of these fucking people living under a dictator? They literally won't wear masks. They won't put masks on their face to keep them safe from a fucking virus. They think that is oppression. And, right, could you imagine? Yeah. And, And that's the thing. They're praising his, like, strong beliefs and all this shit. And yet for four years, you know, under Donald Trump, all they did was say, like, yeah, Russia didn't touch the election. They didn't influence anything, you know, like that. Well, I'm not a Russian state actor. You certainly seem like you're an actor for the Russian wow. state yeah. now. Like, like, I, it's the most obvious thing with, with, with Tucker Carlson. And I don't, you know, claim to, to say that that's who Tucker Carlson is or, or anything like that. Um, but, you know, weren't there like fucking uh, 20 people who like went and celebrated the 4th of July in Moscow this year or something from like Republican elected officials. Oh yeah. Wasn't, like, right. Like, wasn't there something yeah, like that. that came out? I was like, again, I'm not, I'm not like trying to make assertions here about, you know, the things I can't say anything about, but just the irony and the hypocrisy of it is easy enough to call out. Wait, speaking of hypocrisy before we, this is related, but I'm related. It is another reaction from the far right. And I couldn't not, I actually was looking for Candace Owens's reaction because she's my girl, but um, I found a better one that she quote tweeted Ben Shapiro, who's also my girl. He said about the sanctions, the West is consistently under the grave and misimpression that other countries think like we do. Thus, because we have become materialistic above all else, if we levy sanctions and threaten lifestyle harm, other countries will cave. This is parochial to this point of absurdity. 
So he's basically, and he went on to say how, you know, sanctions aren't going to work here and they don't work. We shouldn't do them. Whole long thread. January 8th, 2020. Iran's economy, this is Ben Shapiro, Iran's economy has been devastated by Trump's sanctions. Funding has been cut to Iranian terrorist proxies. Iran's military has been deterred from attacks on Americans by Trump's actions. But somehow it's just Iran being suddenly reasonable and Trump is a nut. Then in 2000, there's like multiple tweets. Oh my tweets God, in, in You're, there's another one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, there's um, from 2015, 15 and 14. He says, Obama says he'll veto any new sanctions against Iran. Great. So Obama's saying he won't sanction and Ben Shapiro is pissed. Iran bill means GOP needs 67 votes to stop, to stop Obama from killing the sanctions. So he wants that to happen. Obama's threat to veto any new Iranian sanctions demonstrates the foolishness and silence on sanctions to cater to Democrats. So he doesn't, want people to sanction us to sanction now because they don't work but four or five years ago and two years ago he was boasting about how the fact that we need to put sanctions on iran and mad at obama that he would not sanction the country wild because they don't work i mean you could go in to see that did it work on iran i don't think it really did that much but that's not to say he's sitting here saying they just don't work but then he's complaining to a different president that he should be saying he should be putting sanctions on it's totally and then when Trump does it, it's, it's great. It's total fucking hypocrisy. I would like to put a sanction on Ben Shapiro, yeah. to be quite honest. <laughs> that would be censorship, Kirk. Whatever. <laughs> you know, like, this is another way that they kind of operate like Putin does. We're seeing a lot of misinformation right now. And, and one thing Putin does as a tactic, and he's used it on his own people when they have protested, is to put out a huge amount of information. And information that's both pro-protester and pro-Putin at the same time. And it's all just to create noise and confusion and nobody knows who to trust or what to believe. And I think all these stupid screaming heads on the far right, like Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro, and like they're doing the same thing. They may not actually believe a lot of this shit. And they might also recognize how hypocritical it is to be okay with sanctions on in one country but not another where circumstances are exactly the same but they don't care it's not hypocritical because they're doing something else they don't give a fuck about the sanctions they don't give a fuck about iran or ukraine they just give a fuck about making as much noise as they possibly fucking can so everybody's running around trying to respond to it so that they can get their heinous medieval worldview it you know just like trending, they trending in the public hate. sphere yeah like, yeah yeah and, I mean, and it literally it makes no sense i mean you've trump out there it's just it's all very it is very like if i was a republican and i like wanted to know what i'm supposed to not that you should live this way but if i'm a, a blind republican or a blind democrat or just trying to listen to exactly what my leaders are saying if i was a republican i'd be like i don't fucking know right now if i'm supposed to like putin hate putin like ukraine hate ukraine think what putin did was great not not know if it was great like it's 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 why like it's from every single person even and including trump has been out there all the past few weeks talking about this it's all over the he's place. like praising putin but then saying what he's doing is wrong but if he what but but if he was president it wouldn't be happening it just doesn't make but right. it doesn't make any sense none of it makes sense no and and they count on it to not make sense they count on it to, yeah. to create a shitstorm. i think andrew you, you hit the nail on the head and i think kirk you followed up with such a good example it's it's like their oldest trick in the book that the media, I think, falls for pretty much every time, you know, like they're happy to cover these things rather than just be like, uh, no, this is an assault on democracy. And like, here's why. And like these things that Joe Biden is doing are doing a really good job. Like, I think, again, it was Pod Save America. One of the co-hosts made like a, a comparison. It's like, uh, OK, like you have <laughs> like the options are not 
nothing and war. <laughs> and, and that is sometimes how the media writes or like sanctions and war. Like th- there are more options in there, you know, and, and they were sort of praising the Biden administration for pursuing those fine lines. And like, but again, it's like, you're not hearing a bunch of people say, oh, we got to invade Ukraine because they know that the majority of Americans right now don't support that. Like, you know, they don't support that. We don't want to get involved in the world's conflicts. We don't even want for this conflict to exist. You know, and I can say that that is the majority, right? Like that's, that is the majority view at this point in time. It's wild. Yep. Well, when we come back, we'll do a short segment on uh, misinformation. Final segment of the episode is just a reflection on misinformation. There has been a ton that has been shared on the internet since this conflict has started. Um, and I think it's something that we need to be mindful of before we share content, um, including probably some of the things that we accidentally maybe even misrepresented in this podcast, right? Like this is a changing environment. It is an environment where we've never seen a conflict of this scale play out um, in such an overexposed space. Um, And specifically, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Google, um, you know, whether it's Twitter, it's really important for us to be vigilant about misinformation at this time. And and I was kind of digging into a couple articles. And one of the articles I was reading was talking about how emotion creates a viral hit and how that can be best shown with a a soldier uh, feeling fatigue. He's, you know, on going on the battlefield and, and, you know, but he's smiling because he's proud. And and there was a video just like that, you know, he's wearing, you know, his, his military garb. He is coasting down grain fields. He's ready to fight. And it got 26 million views on TikTok and it was reshared on Twitter. Um, it was supposed to give a glimpse of to the Russia invasion of Ukraine, except the video was from 2015. <laughs> And it was originally posted on Instagram is what fact checkers found. And it's been the same thing that we've seen play out on Facebook. Um, There's been speculation and interest on whether there are covert influence operations targeting public debate in Ukraine. Are are we seeing cyber hacking groups right now? Um, It's a case where we're seeing multiple different types of hacking. There were 40 accounts, pages and groups on Facebook and Instagram operated in Russia and Ukraine, and they used fake personas, computer generated profile images, and they were masquerading as independent news outlets and posting claims about Ukraine being a failed state. Um, And some of these hackers have already been tied directly back to um, Russia um, and uh, tied back to places in Belarus. Um, And it's very obvious that these things are happening where they've gone so far um, into um, one of the Belarusian efforts. It's called Ghostwriter. Um, They've been blamed for cyber attacks um, for years in European countries. Um, but Meta, the, the parent company of Facebook, said that Ghostwriter has been trying to hack the accounts of high-profile Ukrainians, including military officials, journalists, and public figures, although they couldn't identify any of the individuals for the article. But they basically try to break into the email and social media attempts to post dif- disinformation. Um, so one you know, was, was showing a video of Ukrainian soldiers surrendering. Um, and it's, I think, tempting for us to share. It's tempting for us to comment on. Um, but a lot of these things are being pushed to us 
and they're not things that we can necessarily control. So I think it's just kind of important for us to, to stay vigilant because I, I think it was a statistic I was reading from the Wilson Center, um, which is an organization you know that talks about democracy and disinformation um, and the importance of, of, of trapping it. Fake news is likely to be shared six times as much as real news because it's sensationalized, because we cannot believe that it's real, because um, we can't believe that, you know, that we're seeing this explosion um, over a quote unquote city in Ukraine that is actually just a video game. It can't process in our brains. So we feel this emotional need to share it with everybody and make a comment on it. And that can actually inflame tensions <laughs> that can endanger more lives when we give into those sort of pieces of propaganda or pieces of fake news. Um it's, it's, you know, showing that Ukraine is an aggressor in certain situations um, where Ukraine was literally invaded. There was no provocation from, from Ukraine. When this stuff happens, people look at it like, well, you know what? Both these sides are probably doing something wrong. They just can't get along. Somebody's got to stop this before the rest of the world get it all. That's not what's happening here. That is not what's happening here. But unfortunately, that's a lot of what is being shared. Um, I can't believe how quickly my TikTok for you page has shifted over to all Ukrainian content. That is not the stuff that I was seeing, you know, back, uh, you know, just a few months ago. Um, I don't know if your experience has been the same guys, but, but it's about checking your sources. It's about Googling that video uh, or searching that video on Twitter, um, following news reporters that are in the Ukraine that are verified accounts. If not, we really get ourselves into a slippery slope. So I don't know if you guys have noticed a change in the things that you've been seeing. Um, but I have already been trying to people I follow just being like, gently, like, hey, like, by the way, I noticed that like you shared this video. Um, I actually almost shared it too. And then I, you know, realized it's actually fake news. And then here's the source, you know, or whatever. It's a dangerous game to play, right? Because people think in their minds that they're sharing things that are helpful to the conversation. You don't want to squash people who care, but it is also something that is pretty pervasive and can lead to more inflamed tensions. Um, we saw this same shit happen, um, you know, during the Black Lives Matter protests, right? Immediately, there were these images from years and years and years ago of black people, you know, breaking into stores and, and rioting and looting. And that was shared specifically on, you know, Republican pages to, to rile up Republicans against these protests. And it worked in a lot of places. Support for Black Lives Matter dropped significantly from the beginning of the protests. So not sure if you guys have any thoughts on the misinformation side of things, but just figured I would, I would open it up as we kind of close out here and encourage people to stay vigilant. I think we also have to be careful of things that are pro-Ukrainian in the way that we've seen misinformation used in, in BLM and also January 6th that were something that we would probably relate to. Like, for instance, that the MAGA grandma that people were, were sharing that picture around. Queen, Kurt, I, Kurt I, I, I do not regret that. I, I'm happy for that misinformation. Let me tell you. <laughs> It was being shared around as she was at the insurrection. She wasn't. It was a totally different event in a totally different state. During BLM, there was often videos being shared of police brutality that were doctored or were from, you know, then you would see a different angle a, a week later and it told a different story or it, it was an old video and it was being used to try to show like stuff happening right now. And I think the same 
right now where we're hearing pro-Ukrainian stories like the ghost of Kiev fighter ace, which has not been confirmed by anybody. And a lot of the footage and pictures of it are, again, from video games. Or you see videos of supposedly Ukrainian civilians shooting Russian tanks with rockets. And if you do a little bit of digging, you find out it's actually from a totally different conflict or years before. And it's v- even easier to share those things because you're thinking, hey, this is this is something I agree with. This is great. Here's um, Ukrainian civilians fighting back. Or I think that police brutality legitimately is a problem in America. Here's a video that confirms that. And I think those things are put out there because people are, one, they're trying to farm for fake internet points, which makes their miserable little lives feel better, the people who are doing it. And two, I think it's done on purpose to also discredit the other side because then when those things are exposed, when they're fact-checked in the media and then a retraction has to be done or you have people in the comments after you've shared it saying, hey, this isn't real, then you know people start looking at you like, hey, you shared some misinformation. Why did you do that? Or this news outlet put a story out too quickly before all the information was out there and now we have more information and things have changed. And of course, when they make a correction, people say, well, obviously CNN lies all the time. So I think it's it's done on purpose in both ways. So really the only advice is like, it's so easy to hit the share button. It's so easy to post a story or, or whatever it is. It takes milliseconds just hang on a minute and just Google it. A lot of these things fall apart really, really quick. Or if you're like on Reddit, just scroll down into the comments. Yeah. Eventually you will find somebody saying, hey, uh, here's a link to this video and it's from 2015 and it's in a completely different country. That's the same for TikTok, which I know Andrew doesn't use because he's a 800-year-old white man. I don't understand what the kids are doing these days. <laughs> he still calls it TikTok. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that's also to say that if you see, if you consume any type of media and you have a very strong, immediate, visceral reaction, just recognize that that could elicit the same in someone else. Um, and so you have some responsibility to make sure that that is legitimate and what's eliciting this visceral reaction is in fact true, right? Because that could inspire the wrong person or, you know, potentially the right person to act based off under false pretenses. Um, And that's just as dangerous. So if you immediately have like this crazy reactions to something, think like the the media wants you to have that. Um, And so I think that there's some merit to think like, whoa, I am feeling a lot right now, but let me just double check to make sure that this isn't pandering to those feelings. Um, And if it's not, then share, but also provide some helpful resources instead of just uh, trauma bombing (laughs) your like social media pages. Seriously. Yeah. Well, more to come. (laughs) Like, uh, just like we didn't really know how to start this. I don't really know that we know how to end this. Um, I I think that it's important to keep reading the news. It's important to, you know, uh, keep staying in touch with this. I think that if you haven't watched the highlights or, or read the highlights from the state of the union, you should. Um, just to get a sense of how the president is responding. Um, stop letting the the conservative and the Republican people of your life like frame the narrative around these things. 
start talking about them and start sharing the things that that you've learned or or you've dug into after you've heard us mention them here. You know, I, I live in a place now where fortunately or unfortunately, most people believe kind of what I believe. Um, but for those of you who believe or who sit kind of in the middle um, or interact with people who are a bit in the middle, I mean, we have the possibility to sway some of these people, um, you know, before the other side does. And I think that that's really important, not just because it it's beneficial for the, the you know, Biden administration politically, right? I don't give a fuck about that. It's like more about um, just what we need to do as as human beings on planet Earth, that we should not be um, praising Vladimir Putin or saying that, oh, you know, like everybody's done a little bit of wrong. Like, what is this conflict even about? Like, let's stop bypassing these things, you know, that as we have tried to do with, with other issues on this podcast, um, some of which we've purposely skipped and some of which we've, we've tried to cover as best that we can. So, um, I hope that you all have enjoyed this episode of Let's Unpack That. Um, you know, I hope that you learned something from it. Maybe you didn't enjoy it. Um, but we'll be back again next week um, to talk more, uh, probably about this and developments here. Um, and then we'll also um, have a couple other fun topics lined up as well. So stay tuned. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you guys next week. Peace.